Let's pray as we get started. Father, thank you for another opportunity to gather together with your people. And what a joy it is right now to have spent time worshiping you through our singing and through our giving. And now as we open your word and seek to draw from it insight into who you are and where we fall short of pleasing you, but also the the reality of your grace that lifts us up and enables us to live in a way that that honors you, not only with our lips, but with our lives. And I just pray that as we look into your word this afternoon, you would open our eyes to see more of who you are, that our our minds and our hearts would be engaged with your word and that we would be lifted up to see wondrous things from, from your word today. We pray this because of Jesus and what he has done for us. Amen. Open, if you would, to Exodus chapter 18. Exodus 18 is our text for today and sometimes I'm sure you've had this experience you come to a a passage of scripture and you read through it or you you know the content of it and you're left kind of wondering at first what how does this how does this fit into you know the overall theme of of this book why is this here in in the narrative why why did god choose to <clears throat> excuse me why did god choose to include this and these details for us i kind of had that experience as i i was vaguely familiar with this section before beginning to study for this message and initial reading of it you kind of wonder what purpose does god have other than just kind of giving more details into the, the, the life of Moses and what, what he was going through as he led the people. And we certainly know that, that every scripture is given by God for our benefit, for our instruction. Nothing is included in scripture by accident. Nothing is incidental to our understanding of, of God's word and, and ultimately God himself. And so I believe that, and, and even as I've come to see the last couple weeks, God, I think, has much in this section for what our call is as his, as his people, as Christians. And so what might at first appear to just be a family reunion between Moses and members of his family, and even some fatherly advice to Moses and how he could better lead the nation of Israel, actually has much to do with what God was doing through his people as he is bringing them out of Egypt into the, the land that he has for them, bringing them along that journey. I think there's much to learn from, from God's revelation of himself, what the people's responsibility is, and ultimately what our responsibility is as people of God. Let me read the first section of this chapter 
the first 12 verses. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And I want us to look at this section under the heading, Proclaiming God's Name. We're going to, as we work through, we're going to see that ultimately this section shows us that God was all about the proclamation of his own name through his people. This section tells the story of Moses being reunited with his family and rehearsing before his father-in-law all that God had done to bless the nation of Israel since the last time they had seen each other. Just to remind us of the history of Moses' father-in-law and his family, we are introduced to his father-in-law back in chapter 2 where after Moses flees Egypt, remember when he murdered the Egyptian in, a, in an attempt to defend his people and, and he, he's found out. His people reject what he had done. And so he flees Egypt and, and heads out into the wilderness, heads to Midian. And when he gets there, he sits down by a well of water and, and Jethro, who is referred to as Rule, back in chapter 2, his daughters come to water the flock that they are, are taking care of for their father. And while they're there, other shepherds come and, and take the water and, and mistreat uh, these daughters of Jethro. And Moses steps in and, and intervenes and protects them and, and takes care of, of these, these daughters of his and in response to that is invited back to their home and, and is even rewarded with the gift of, of one of his daughters to be his wife, Zip, Zipporah. Now it's back in chapter 2. And then you remember Moses continues to live there until chapter 3 meets, while he's tending the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law, meets the Lord at the burning bush where God calls him to go back to Egypt to deliver his people from, from Egyptian slavery. And we encounter Jethro again then in chapter 4 when Moses goes back to him requesting to leave 
to go back to Egypt. And, and it's interesting because there he, he's a bit vague about why he's going back. You remember when we studied through that, his, his initial reason for going back was just to go see what he termed his brothers in Egypt to check on their welfare. And he didn't seem to want Jethro to know the real reason why he was headed back to Egypt. And along that journey back, there's this conflict between himself and his wife. And the whole issue of the circumcision of their son. And it seems as that's most likely the point where he sends Zipporah and his sons back to Jethro's family as he goes, goes into Egypt. We're not sure why his wife and, and sons were back living with Jethro. We don't know exactly why or when uh, they were sent out, but it seems likely that it was probably on that journey at that point that he sends them back before he himself goes all the way back into to Egypt. And now Jethro appears again. This time he's heard all that God has done. He's, he's heard what happened, how, e, uh, how Israel was freed from Egyptian slavery, how they, God sent the plagues on the Egyptians, God freed his people, how they've crossed the Red Sea, how the Egyptians were destroyed. Even the battle, certainly with the Amalekites that we just looked at in the last chapter, last week. And here Jethro, upon hearing all that God had done and, and Moses and, and the people now being in, in fairly close proximity to Midian, is able to make the journey to reunite Moses with the rest of his family. Another noteworthy thing, I think, as we just observe the text for a second, is the inclusion again of the meaning of Moses' son's names. The first son, Gershom, which we were introduced to back in chapter 4, whose name means, or, or the reason why he was named that, was Moses testified that he is a sojourner in a foreign land. And, and that certainly was the case when, he was, when Gershom was born, when, when Moses, after Moses had left Egypt and now was living in Midian, but also even more broadly than that, Moses in identifying with his people who were sojourning in a foreign land, the land of Egypt. And then the name of the other son, Eliezer. Moses' testimony that, that God had been his help, had delivered him from the sword of Pharaoh. I think what's interesting to just kind of observe as we, we've seen even in recent chapters that the use of names and, and the meanings of names given. Remember back a couple chapters ago when, when the place that they were at, they named Mara because of the bitter water. Mara meaning bitter. And the names of the places that we've have, we have recorded most recently in the book of Exodus are names that are associated with difficulty for the people. Places where they hungered and thirsted. Places where they encountered difficulty. And now these names that are, that are drawn out, we understand that names in, in the Bible are significant. There, there's reasons why people are named certain things. There's much much goes into those names about the experiences of the people, the difficulties, the joys, the victories that they experience at any given point. And so I think it's noteworthy to, to see these names in, in, in the record here, the reminder that, that, yes, the journey to this point has been difficult, but God has been faithful and has rescued his people. He's been a help to his people, even as they have been sojourners in a foreign land. And, and God, in being their help, is bringing them into the land that he ultimately has for them, the promised land. 
So after exchanging the, the normal greeting, the, the, the pleasantries, you might say, Moses, in doing so, takes the, the role of, of the, the, the one who is inferior. He bows, he kisses his father-in-law, indicating that his father-in-law was the one that, that deserved the respect. As the older man, it's, it's likely that, that Jethro was actually the high priest in the land of Midian. He's called here the priest of Midian. This was a man that Moses demonstrates respect for because of the office that he possessed and the, the authority and the, the age difference over Moses, his son-in-law. And even here as they greet one another, you might imagine what Moses' reaction could, could have been. I mean, here, here was a guy that back in chapter 4 was tending this guy's sheep. I mean, this, this kind of plays into our stereotypes of father-in-law, son-in-law, right? I mean, Moses couldn't even get his own flock of sheep. I think Joseph maybe preached that section, kind of drew that out, that, that after all those years, Moses still was just tending his father-in-law's sheep. And Moses goes back to Egypt, and you could, you could almost imagine if any of one of us had, had just delivered our country from slavery, and won these victories, we would want our father-in-law to know all about how great we were. We would want to impress him with how great of a deliverer we were to validate ourselves. And yet Moses demonstrates none of that sense of, of seeking to validate himself. Instead, he recounts, the verse tells us, verse 8, all the hardship that had come upon them and how the Lord had delivered them from those. His testimony is one of proclaiming what God had done for his people. Jethro's response to Moses' testimony is one of praise to God. It's worship. He offers burnt offering and sacrifices to Yahweh because of what he has done for his people. And this, these verses right here, I think are the, are the key verses of this section. This is, this is why this section is included here. God wants us to understand that the point of this reunion between Moses and his family and Moses and his father-in-law is not just a nice bridge historically to get, to get us further along in the story, but rather it's, to prove to us that God's name was being proclaimed. Not only had Jethro heard in Midian what God had been doing, likely from his, his daughter-in-law as they received reports about what God had done in Egypt and had been doing as Israel journeyed, but now here explicitly Moses testifying to him what he had done. God is showing us that his name was being proclaimed among the nations. You see, from the very beginning of God's dealings with the family of Abraham and his choice of, of Abraham at, and his family as, as the chosen seed, it has been clear that God's purpose has, is much broader than just that family, just that people. Even in the initial promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see, God's blessing was not just for the family of Abraham, but it was so that through blessing Abraham, Abraham would be a conduit so that all families of the earth would be blessed. It is equally as clear that God is committed to making his name known to all the nations, even those who rebel against his authority. This has been a theme so far in the book of Exodus. When they were in Egypt as slaves, God's promise leading up to the Exodus and the sending of the plagues was what? It was so that Egypt would know, so that Pharaoh would know that he was the Lord. God was committed and is committed that all people would know that he is the Lord. That he is the one we have just sung about who sits on the throne. He is the one possessing all authority. It seems providential, perhaps, that we see this story right here following the the battle with the Amalekites because there is a stark contrast between the, the Amalekites' visit, so to speak, to Israel, one of rebellion and warfare, and Jethro's visit where he hears and and believes and worships the true God of, of Israel. Jethro provides for us the proper response of the nations to the testimony of God and his his working. The Egyptians and the Amalekites show us the the rebellious disobedience and defiance against God at the the blessing of his people. And here Jethro provides the the picture, the example of, of those who respond in faith, hearing what God has done. And his belief in Yahweh here unites him with the nation of Israel in worship of their God and and provides or points toward future blessing of Gentiles who would also worship the God of Israel and be brought in and united with the people of God. I think there's also an important consideration here as we answer the question, why is it that some nations rebelled against God and, and hated his people and hated their God because of what he had done? And yet others heard and worshipped and believed. I think there's even a, a picture of God's sovereign rule over the nations here. Where he does, even as we saw back in Egypt with Pharaoh, that God, God raised Pharaoh up so that he might demonstrate his power. And so it is that God deals differently with the Egyptians and the Amalekites and the Midianites, and the Israelites, and all the rest of the nations. Because God is the one on the throne who is able to deal with them as he pleases. You see, God is sovereign over all the nations. And ultimately, that is the answer of why one nation hates God's people and another nation loves God's people. 
and their God. It's because God is sovereign. This distinction is another aspect of God's ability to deal with nations and people as he chooses. We see this throughout scripture. I think one of the the most interesting passages I came across in, in studying this week was a promise God made through Isaiah for the nation of Israel. Imagine these people here weren't reading, wouldn't have read Isaiah, but, but even the, the, the nation of Israel hearing the prophet Isaiah, how do you think they would have felt when, when reading or hearing this promise to the nation of Egypt? God said, in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of Egypt, an altar to Yahweh. Remember, the Egyptians said, who is Yahweh? We don't know Yahweh. But in that day, Isaiah says, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, a pillar to the Lord at its border. When they cry to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. This nation that God just destroyed and delivered his people from He promises that he will one day restore them and they will be worshipers of Yahweh as well. And so in the proclamation of of God's name, in the, the demonstration of his power and grace to the nations, God proves that he is he is sovereign to do with one as he pleases and to to do with another as he pleases. God's work of salvation reconciles not only sinners to God, and it does, but also unites people who were formerly hostile to one another to be united by the blood of Christ. I mean, just think about the pictures from the book of Revelation. Revelation 7. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the picture of, of the, before the throne of God. People from, from every nation, now united, those who were formerly hostile to one another and hostile to God now stand before his throne together, worshiping that God. And you and I are the displays of God's power and grace to the world. The worldwide display of, of God's name, the proclamation of the salvation that he brings is bound up in, in the, the commission, the command that Jesus gave to his disciples and even that we have received now before he ascended into heaven, to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So God's purpose back in Exodus was that all the nations would know that he is God. This was the testimony of Jethro. When he says in verse 11, the Lord is greater than all gods. God was committed to 
every nation knowing that. And God is still committed to every nation, every person knowing that he is God. He is greater than all small g gods. John Piper has famously said that missions exist because the worship of God doesn't. Missions exist because the worship of God doesn't. That is, we go as missionaries to people that don't yet worship God. And we go with the message, the testimony of who God is and what he has done with the confidence that God will make them worshipers of him through our testimony, through our display of God's power and and grace that that he has done in our lives and in our hearts. Just as was the case with Abraham and his family, we as spiritual descendants of Abraham are to be conduits of God's blessing to others. We do this through the, the display of, of his name, the proclamation of his name. We do this by making God's name famous. I was reminded as I, I thought on this this week that you know, what is happening to us is not just about us. What is happening to us, what God is doing to us and for us is not just about us, but it's about what God is doing on a broader scale through us. I think this, again, is another theme, another thing that God is doing for his people through Exodus. The things he was doing to them when they were in Egypt was was not just about them, it was about those around them. It was about what God was trying to communicate to them about who he was. So what is happening to you, what is happening to me right now, is not just about us, but it's about God and what he is trying to show through us. The display of his name through our lives and through our words as we testify of his faithfulness and his grace to us. It also occurred to me that sometimes we are called to proclaim the fame of God's name to people we don't necessarily want to deal with. I think even even as, as Israel was making their journey, I think they probably would have just rather have gotten to the promised land rather than than try to proclaim God's name to all these nations around them. They just want to get victory over them so that they can live where God wants them to live. I think even you and I probably sometimes resist the call to proclaim God's name to certain people or types of people or groups of people for whatever reason. We might raise objections. Yes, we know we ought to. We know that God has called us. And we might not go to other nations. But there are other peoples, even right here where we live, that perhaps God is calling us to. That we are, even right now, maybe resisting the call to do that. Kind of maybe, maybe extremely, just imagine for a second your worst enemy. 
you know, hopefully most of us don't really have a, a worst enemy that we can really think of that we're like in, you know, strong conflict with right now. But just, you know, imagine somebody that, that right now you're in conflict with or, or maybe you would consider them an enemy. Maybe a, a relationship with a family member that is difficult. Just imagine and consider for a, a moment that one day he or she might be standing next to you before the throne of God worshiping him. Maybe they're not yet a worshiper of God, but maybe your intersection into their lives is a, is a means by which they are brought to that point. And even as, as God promised to save Egypt, the enemy of Israel, perhaps God even calls us to reach out to our enemies to bring them to Christ. The love and forgiveness that we have experienced ought to compel us to reach out despite any objections that we might raise. The love and, and, and forgiveness that we have received should, should override all of those objections. You and I are called to proclaim God's name. God is, God is using us as a church, using us as individuals to, to make his name famous among the nations, and we have opportunities to support those who go to the nations. But he also wants to make his name famous to just our city and our neighborhoods. And, and so we are called and, and, and a, a reminder of, of this call of God to proclaim his name. God's purpose is not just us to the promised land that he has for us, but it's to along the way cause others to see the greatness of his name. So we move to the second section of, of Exodus 18. I want us to see this big idea of knowing God's law. So not only do we proclaim God's name, but we are, we are called and we need to know God's law. So this visit with Jethro continues with this advice to Moses for improving his leadership effectiveness. And after all, what would a visit from your father-in-law be without a little advice about how to improve the way you're doing something, right? But actually, we'll see that, that this advice is certainly God-ordained. This was, this was a man that God used, and his advice was used not only for Moses and, and the way that he led the people, and, and God used him there, but but even for us as we lead and relate to God's people. Let's read now beginning in verse 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice and I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God, 
and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and, and you will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. So during this visit, Jethro observes the way Moses had gone about presiding over and judging the people. He would sit there, as was the custom, and, and people would come to him with their, their disputes with one another, their, their questions, their inquiries of God, to hear from Moses. And Jethro's response when seeing this was, what you're doing is, is foolish. It cannot continue. It cannot be sustained. I mean, remember that at this point, the nation of Israel is anywhere between one and two million people traveling through the desert. You can, you can imagine it. It certainly would be, would be true that Moses would sit there from morning till evening and the next day from morning till evening presiding over these, these conflicts, these inquiries of God. And Jethro's advice to him is if, if this is to continue, things have to change. There's, there's got to be a different way to go about judging the people. We might be tempted to think that this is just good practical advice from an older man, a man more experienced, that he gives to his son-in-law. But I think there's much more going on. I mean, it certainly is good advice. But I think there's more going on as to why. Why this was so important. Why Moses' ministry to his people in this way was so important. And the indicator of this to me is what we read about God's law in this section. Because here we are. This is recorded before we, we get the formal giving of the law, which will happen in just a couple chapters. So God has not yet formally given his people the law as we think of it the Ten Commandments, and the other laws that go along with it. So I think that our understanding of of this passage in, in chapter 18 tells us a couple important things. First, the law of God existed before he gave the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not the introduction to God's law to his people. The people understood before that giving of the law how they were to live before God. This is why they came to Moses asking to, to hear from God, asking Moses to, to judge between them. 
They understood that they were, they were responsible before God and, and, and sought the right way that they were to live before him. So the law of God existed before Exodus chapter 20. Secondly, there seems to be here a, a shifting of Moses' role among the people from being their deliverer who had stood up before Pharaoh and, and demanded that God let his people go and then led them through the Exodus to now being their shepherd, one who is, who is now leading the people, spiritually speaking as well, teaching them, instructing them in the way that they are to live before God and before each other. He's now responsible for the people's understanding of the law of God. This is what Jethro tells him when he gives him this advice. I think the key verses of this section are verses 19 and 20. Jethro tells him, you shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. This was Moses' ministry to his people. He was to be their, their shepherd. We could think of it, he was to be their pastor in a way. He was to be the one that instructed them in the, way, the ways of God, God's laws. I think this passage also teaches us that God's law is necessary for his people. This was hit on all the way back, I think, probably in the introductory message for the book of Exodus, that God's law is necessary for God's people. Not only were the people aware of what was expected of of them prior to the, the formal giving of the law, but they needed to have the law in order to understand how to live before God. They needed to know what they were to do, what, what God expected of them. And this was Moses' role in, in communicating that to the people. See, God has not given us his law. He did not give his law to, to, the, to the nation of Israel and he has not given us his law just as a set of extra hoops that we need to jump through just because. But instead, they are a, a reflection. They are They are the indication of how we live before a holy God. The people needed to know the law of God. This is the means by which we obey God, is by knowing his law. I think it's also helpful helpful for us to understand God's law to be broader than just commandments. Scripture, and these verses talk about statutes and laws, which certainly point toward what's coming in the next chapters. But Scripture also talks about the law of God and, as God's word, what we, what we consider Scripture. That is the law of God. So don't think, just, don't think of the law as just commands, the, the thou shalt nots and the thou shalts. But God's law is, is all that he has spoken to his people. The psalmist writes, the law of God is in his heart that is the righteous 
and his steps do not slip. Psalmist also says, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. This was the basis for why the people came to Moses. They had disputes. They needed the counsel of God. Moses was their their access to God. In order for their steps to not slip, to use the words of Psalm 37, they needed the counsel of God. They needed to understand the law of God. Also, I don't believe this passage is primarily about leadership. I think there's certainly things we can learn about leadership from this chapter. I think there's real wisdom in what Jethro says to Moses regarding his leadership. I think this lesson is broader than simply leadership and and is important for for every Christian, whether you're in leadership or not. I think there's a broader theological truth that we can observe from this section, and that is that God's people are called to be dependent people rather than independent people. God calls his people to fundamentally be dependent, not independent. The means by which Moses was instructed to better manage and perform his ministry, his service to the people, was to to understand that he was dependent on others, to go find others to help. I don't know that Moses had set himself up as the only one that could do the job. I don't think that, that doesn't seem to be the case. But he he needed the advice of Jethro to, you can't do it all by yourself, as well-intentioned as your, your efforts might be. We are dependent people. Not only are we dependent on God, but we are dependent on others to help us. So Jethro advised him, and, and Moses ultimately did, go find able men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate a bribe. Certainly important for those judging between parties, They couldn't be bribed to favor one over the other. They were messengers of God to dispense the law of God to the people. And so God provides people to share the burden with Moses, this burden of leadership, the burden of of serving the people. And I think the broader theme here for us is that when God gathers a people together, whether it's a nation of people as we have in Exodus or a church of redeemed sinners like we have here, he ordains that there is a need for mutual help, mutual service. And there's no shame in us admitting that we cannot do the work God has called us to do alone. I said, we need certainly God's help to fulfill his calling, but often we need others' help to fulfill our calling. He does not call us to, to, to accomplish things in isolation from everyone else. He calls us to go accomplish things 
with the help of those he's brought around us. And this was the basis of the calling of the first deacons back in Acts chapter 6. couldn't possibly lead the, the early church. Things were falling through the cracks. There were things that they, they weren't taking care of. Things were being neglected because they just couldn't do it by themselves. And we as a church need this same kind of cooperation, same kind of service to one another to accomplish the things that God has called us to do here. Whether that's formal leadership positions or just coming alongside and helping others in, in the service that we are, we are accomplishing here. The great benefit for us is that we have the law of God written on our hearts. This is the new covenant. God has, God has written his law on our hearts. And yet even though we have that, and it's certainly a great benefit, it gives us the ability to obey God. Mutual help for our sanctification. We need the strength and encouragement from each other. We need We need to be around one another. We need to be provoking one another to love and good works. We need each other. Just as Moses needed help to accomplish his ministry, you and I need help to accomplish our ministries. However big or small we might think those ministries are, we are called to minister to one another. We all have a ministry. I'm even reminded as we come to the communion table, we come together. It's a picture of our unity in the body of Christ. We come and share this meal. We are coming in fellowship, showing our, our love for one another, our, the fact that we are unified as, as brothers and sisters in Christ formerly hostile to, to God and to one another, but have been brought into this relationship. And, and we have the opportunity to do that at, at the table now. And this can be a, a picture of the proclamation of God's name, which Jesus tells us we do every time we take the table. We proclaim Christ to ourselves and to, our, to, to each other. We also provide this portrait of unity as we come as a body, come together and remember Christ's death for us in in bringing us together as this body. So just to remind us that this table is open to all that are trusting Christ as your Savior. It's not limited just to members of our church. We open it up to to all who can honestly come and, and through the taking of these elements proclaim the grace and forgiveness of God that they have received and are continuing to receive through the work of Christ that we that we commemorate and celebrate through the taking of these elements.
So I will pray that the team will come and, and as we typically do when the music and the singing starts, you come and, and take the elements. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you have given us your word and use these narrative stories of people's lives and we can study it and we can see the things that you are are doing through these these narratives and we are able to see how you and your sovereignty are are working things so that your name is proclaimed We pray that you would help each one of us as as people that have received your grace and forgiveness. Enable us in ways that we have not yet experienced to proclaim your name. even to those that perhaps we think are unreachable, will never listen to us, but we just would rather not proclaim your name to. And even people we've proclaimed your name to a thousand times. Keep us faithful to the task of making your name famous. We thank you for the work of Christ that we commemorate now with the Lord's table, the, the work that has written your law on our hearts, that enables us to obey your word, that has given us eyes to, to see the wisdom of what you're doing in our lives and the ability to follow you in, in obedience. So we pray that that work would continue even now as we come as a unified body celebrating what you have done in rescuing us from our sins and uniting us to one another in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.